I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good evening and welcome to Slogging It. Tonight, I am flying solo, but I'm really happy about that, really, because the bloke that I'm about to talk to is an absolute icon of cricket and disability cricket, a good friend of mine, husband, father, author, mentor, Lord's Taverner, ECB head of disability cricket, and maybe, most importantly, depending on what your favourite tipple is, a rum lover, which I'm sure we will get onto at some point. Ian Martin, thank you so much for coming on to join me. Absolute pleasure. So, Firstly, as with all of our interviews, we, we want to talk about a little bit about your backstory so if you can just share with us your kind of personal journey and how you became involved eventually in disability cricket. Cool. Wow. Okay. So starting at the beginning, got introduced to get to the game by my dad, like like many of us did. I fell in love with it probably 1981, Bosom's Ashes. Yeah. I remember coming home from school and watching that religiously. Yeah, and just loved the game. Started playing for the local club uh, and played right the way through till about the age of 16, I probably realised, like, again, like many of us do, that I was more enthusiastic than talented. So I, I, I recognised quite early on that I probably wasn't going to make it as a pro and started looking for another career. And my, my cousin was in the Falklands War. And on the, the night he got back to the UK, we had a big party at my granddad's house. So I was, I was 12 at the time. And I remember sitting on the washing machine in my granddad's kitchen, listening to, listening to Stuart telling us all the stories of what the Falcons was like from his perspective. Yeah. And I was just hooked on it. So like I'd grown up on granddad telling me all the stories about the second world war. So like yeah. my granddad was the original uncle Albert. Every <laughs> conversation started with during the war or when I was in the Navy and then yeah, so I was sat in the washing room, wash, uh, on the washing machine in the kitchen, listening to, to Stuart telling us all these stories. And I'm thinking, you know, Grandad's telling me about all what he did, and yet Stuart's, Stuart's actually living it. You know, I can buy yeah. into this. I can, I can hear what he's saying. So I decided that night that that was what I was going to do. I was going to join the Navy as soon as I left school. So from that point on, high school didn't really interest me at all because I knew what I was going to do. So I left school with O-level English and right. a, load of, a load of poor grades in every other subject uh, and went off and joined the Navy and, wow. and never looked back. So I was very fortunate that uh, the first ship I joined was HMS Art Royal, went around the Far East in Australia as my first my first trip six months away, oh. so yeah, literally by by the time I was I was eighteen, I'd I'd been around the world one and a half times, played cricket on every continent apart from Antarctica, and yeah, it was just loving life really. 
Then a bit, I did a bit of time ashore and got a phone call one morning. I was in a shore base in London mm. and a phone call came through. My boss said, do you still want to go back to sea as quickly as possible? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you'd better pack your stuff up. This was a Friday lunchtime. He says, you need to go home, see your parents and be in Plymouth on Sunday night because wow. you say it's Gulf on HMS London on Monday morning. Wow. So literally I had an afternoon getting a gas mask fitted and all this sort of stuff, a load of, a load of injections, back home to see mum and dad. So spent, spent the Saturday at home and then on the Sunday got the train down to Plymouth, joined the ship and off we went to the Gulf. So this was September 1990, just after Saddam had invaded Kuwait. Yeah. And spent, spent seven months out in the Gulf during the, uh, during the first Gulf War. Is that um, commonplace to, to have that? I, I mean, obviously, you, your commander said, are you keen to go back that quickly? Is that a choice that individual service people are allowed to make? Or Yeah, I mean, and, it, and it doesn't always come off. So, you know, it, you, you're, on like a, you're on like a rotor, depending on what yeah. trade you're in and how many places there are on each ship for that trade. And I, I just said I wanted to go back to sea as quickly as possible. I, did, I didn't join the Navy to spend time in the UK. Yeah. So after my time on the R Royal was done, I volunteered to go back to sea as quickly as possible. And, yeah, you know, it, it worked out for me. The, the call came and, and off I went. And, it, it, you know, that, it really was a whirlwind. So, yeah, for first Gulf War... Before sort of uh, all the action started, there was a lot of talk about Saddam using chemical weapons and nerve agents and stuff like that. Mm. And we were instructed really to have a number of injections that were there to protect us should we come into contact with biological weapons or, or nerve agents. And I remember having five or six injections all on the same day, one after the other, wow. not thinking twice about it. Yeah. Anyway, without going into all the stories of the, all the, you know, the action and the, the actual war itself, got back home the following March, April time, and I damaged my ankle ligaments playing football down in Plymouth. And the Navy operated about a year or so later. And during, after, the, after the plaster came off my leg, the physio said to me, there's something not right here. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you're putting the work in to get your strength back. Yeah. But the strength isn't coming back. There's something not right. So she sent me off for a, a load of tests. And it, it turned out that I'd, I'd developed this neurological condition. Wow. Uh, and I said, well, hang on. You know, this is a bit, bit coincidental because at the time, there were a lot of servicemen that returned from the Gulf whose babies were being born with, with birth defects. Okay. A lot of servicemen were going down with like chronic fatigue. And it was all unexplainable. But the only thing that we all had in common was that we'd served in the Gulf and all had these injections. Right. But it, also, it was also coincidental that my dad had also had issues with his legs. Right throughout his life and the service put it down to oh well, it's hereditary it's the same condition as your dad's got but dad had never been diagnosed so we didn't have anything to compare it to and also for me it was all far too coincidental because I was I was pretty fit before yeah before I joined up so um the long and short of it was the Navy ended up kicking me out, saying that I was unfit to serve at sea. Now, even, even though at that time I'd been promoted and I wasn't due to go back to sea for about another eight years, something like wow. that. Okay. And, I, and I, was in a, I was in a short job anyway. And I, I, I came out of it feeling probably a little bit bitter. Did you feel it was cut out? I, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. And at the, at the time, I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around why it, I felt as if I was being treated really unfairly mm. because I, I felt as if I'd done my bit for the Navy by going back to sea as quickly as yeah. possible, dropping everything at the, 
you know, at a moment's notice to go off to sea for seven months. And yet, when I needed a bit of time to get my head around stuff, you know, that time wasn't there. And yeah. the, they said to me, if I was 37 with three years left to serve, they'd have shoved me away in an office somewhere and let me serve my time to get my pension. Yeah. But as it was, by the time it all worked through, I was, I was 24, out of a job, lost identity, really didn't know where to go or what to do. And it, yeah, I mean, that was, it was quite a tough time. And I didn't really know which direction I was going to go in. Gave up playing cricket because my, my legs had got to a point where I could jog, but I couldn't sprint. Yeah. Um, I couldn't really jump. And I remember fielding for my, my local club side at a ground just up the road from where I'm sat now. The ball, I was at, uh, I'd have been at mid-off, mid-off and the ball, the ball was passing by my right-hand side. And I went, I went to dive to stop it but I couldn't dive. My, my knees just collapsed. Right. Landed on the floor. Ball went past me. And then I was struggling to get up off the floor. And I'm thinking, oh, this is just embarrassing. Mm. Making a fool of myself. I'm not contributing to the team. I just thought, nah, I don't want to be feeling like this, trying to do something that I really love and I enjoy. So I just I packed in, age 24. And then fast forward six years, um... My legs had deteriorated a bit more. And one evening I picked up a, the local newspaper and there was an advert in there, a guy, a guy called Paul Cartwright. He lives in Wrexham. And he was looking for cricketers with a disability because he was trying to get a team together. Yeah. And I wasn't sure at that point if what I had was a disability, right? Because I probably thought then, the way a lot of people do now, that... People with physical disabilities use sticks and yeah. they use wheelchairs. And yeah, the disabilities are really obvious. Yeah. And at that point mine wasn't. If you if you saw me on a day-to-day basis, you wouldn't know that I had a disability. But if I had to run for a bus, you'd soon know that I didn't have a disability. Because yeah. <laughs> it wasn't gonna happen. If you saw me trying to play cricket, you'd know I had a disability. Yeah. So on that basis. I just thought, you know what, I'm going to give this guy a call and see what this is about. Mm. And I went and met him a couple of days later. And within two weeks, I was playing for a Wales representative side up at Old Trafford in the indoor school. And I'd, I'd never experienced anything like it in my life. Loads of different types of disabilities, amputees, cerebral palsy, people in wheelchairs. And there was me. I was still mobile-ish, mm. albeit I couldn't jog or I couldn't run, but I could still walk reasonably fast. So right. I'd push a single into the net and walk really quick between the wickets. And that, to me, felt like cricket again. And mm. I immediately sort of felt as if I fitted in, even though, even though my disability wasn't as severe as some of the other ones there. Mm. It was quite obvious that some of the guys on prosthetic limbs were a lot more mobile than I was. So wow. I, certainly, I certainly didn't feel out of place. Mm. So then I, I, I got myself ingrained in this a little bit more, really enjoyed being back playing again. And then a couple of weeks later, we played for Wales in the National County Championship. And our, our first game was at home to Yorkshire at, at Colwyn Bay. And I went out to bat and bowl the balls the first ball to me and I see it out of his hand it's a good length it's pretty straight so I'm front foot down the wicket trying to play a forward defensive forgetting that I couldn't do that anymore because as soon as I put any weight through my front knee just collapsed. I was down yeah so I was down on the floor eating grass and the wicket keeper stumps me oh so this hasn't gone too well and I'm like I'm feeling rubbish again thinking, gosh, you know, I can't even play disabled cricket. This is, you know, this is embarrassing. But I just loved being around the team again and yeah. being around the group. And it just dawned on me then that if I was going to play or if I was going to continue 
to enjoy this form of cricket, I was going to have to start using a wheelchair. Other, other people were doing it. And I just thought that that is my sort of key, if you like, yeah. to remaining involved in the sport. And that's what I did. The company that I worked for at the time bought, bought me a wheelchair, sports wheelchair. And then I spent the next six years trying to learn how to play from it. Yeah. Because everything, yeah. everything that you know as a, as a standing up batsman all changes when you sat down. Cool. Yeah. So, to, the, you know, the example that I give of that is that if you're trying to read the, where the ball's going to pitch out of the bowler's hand, so if you think it's a good length ball when you're standing up, you're leaning forward to play a forward defence. Yeah. In a wheelchair, a good length ball comes up here. Of course, yeah, yeah. Okay. So a, a, a good length ball is something that you're going to be looking to to pull yeah. or get out of the way of because it's going to hit you on the lid. But trying to retrain your brain that that's what's going to happen and yeah. that's how you move, it, 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 it was just really, really difficult. So that, that was the playing side of it, but at least I was back on the field and trying to contribute in my own sort of small way to what the team was trying to achieve. But I felt as if I was having more of an impact off the pitch because, like, okay. you know, I had a reasonable sort of administrative brain and realised that disability cricket at the time probably needed to be a lot more structured than it, than it actually was. And I sort of busied myself with, with trying to sort that out, really, and trying to get some sponsorship for our team and more support. I got involved on the organising body of the National Championship <clears throat> that was kind of affiliated to ECB at the time, um, not in any sort of formal way. And over the years, I kind of realised that I was getting more enjoyment out of that and being involved in cricket than I was out of my day job. And I had a, a reasonable job at the time. I was a, a manager within a a financial services organisation, decent okay. salary, decent bonuses, but I just hated it compared with almost, yeah, yeah, with what I was doing in cricket. So I, I had a look at the sort of ECB's recreational game structure and where disability cricket sat, and there was a they had a guy consultant, lovely bloke by uh, by the name of Roger Fuggle. And he was, he was the link between physical and learning disability cricket, blind cricket and deaf cricket okay. with the ECB. But I, I sort of looked at it and I thought, well, do you know what? Roger was of an age where he, he wasn't going to go on forever. Retirement would have been a couple of years away, I guess, yeah. for him. So I thought, well, ECB are going to have a choice to make. They're either going to have to replace him with another consultant or this game is going to grow and they'll, re they'll replace him with a, a full-time manager. Yeah. But well, what would a full-time manager look like? And then I realised that I had none of the sort of qualifications or experience that, that they might be looking for. So I took a decision at that point um, to leave the job that I had in financial services and take a, a hefty pay job to get involved in community level disability sport development. And through doing that, I was able to gain experience of disabilities that I had no awareness of really, visual impairment, hearing impairment, learning disability. I knew, I knew a lot about my own disability, mm. but an awful lot about those other groups. So taking that opportunity got me a lot of that experience carried on volunteering within the cricket world, got involved on a, an ECB disability cricket forum. And then lo and behold, about four years later, Roger decides that he, he wants to retire and ECB were going to recruit a manager. So by this time I had four years community disability sport experience. All the work that I'd done in and around disability cricket with ECB as a volunteer applied to the job and yeah, thankfully got it. So that was back in 2007. Yeah, and I'm still here today. Absolutely. Well, I mean, a phenomenal, <laughs> a, a phenomenal job you're doing, which we will come on to shortly. I want to just talk to you now about, I mean, your book, which has got a pretty 
hefty title when you you know when you think about it. It's titled "How Cricket Saved My Life." So when when did that come about? Uh, I haven't yet had the chance to read it, uh, but I certainly will. What what's the what's the kind of content? Uh, what drove you to write it? At what point in your life did you write it? And um, when when's the next the next Ian Martin novel coming out? Well, it, it's a book that wasn't meant to be a book. Is the long and short of it. So what I've done is, you know, on on different different periods of my life, I'd written memoirs like diary okay. entries and stuff like that. So I'd done a few while I was out in the first Gulf War that I'd kept hold of. I'd done some more on different cricket tours that I'd been on through my role. And then when COVID came along, I had a a a bit of time, as a lot of us did. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put it all together because I wanted to to put something down on paper for my children so that they could understand why I was away from home so much when they were little and also how um, they would remember when I was walking and not using sticks or a wheelchair. But now I'm I'm in the wheelchair full time. So I wanted to explain that journey and I wanted it to be in my words because the the other thing that had happened was my my mum had passed away and me and my brother were never really told what was wrong with dad and we had to we had to try and work it out for ourselves so I didn't want that to be the situation for my kids I wanted to document it really and just say you know this is this is your dad this is what happened and after i put it all together i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is the deal each week you'll hear us in conversation with business icons this show will explore deal making across sports media and entertainment that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I, I let a couple of family members read it because I put a lot about family in there. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing anybody a disservice yep. or the my recollections matched theirs and the feedback that i got back was you you've got to publish this this is really really good and i'm like well i'm not sure about that because that wasn't the intention of it and then i let there was a guy called chris haynes who used to be the communications manager at ecb okay Um, and also claire connor at ECB, yep. who you know I've known for a long time, and I asked them both to to have a read of it and give me their thoughts. Mm. One from a communications perspective, and you know what what could he advise to improve it, and then I wanted Claire's perspective on it more from a grammatical perspective because yeah. yeah. she used to be a, an English teacher, so I wanted to try and get it as word perfect as I could, so. I took feedback both from them, and 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 they were the same. They just like, look, you should probably try and publish this. So I sent it off. I think I sent it off to about six publishers, and one came back within ten days and said, "We'll take it." So, like, wow. all right, done deal. Let's see, yeah. let's see where it goes. And like by that time, I got the a bit of a feeling then that yeah, actually, I'd like to see this in in print. You know, and I. I I can't speak for any other authors, but I'm, I'm guessing they felt the same. That I think once you once you submit your your work for publication, you you can't wait to see it in hardback really? format. You know where there's a cover on it, and somebody's going to try and market it for you. Yeah. So when that happened, it was like, wow, you know, I can't believe this that somebody's actually interested in my story. So yeah, that's that's really how come it came to be out there not through any massive desire at the outset to publish a book, but more to have a, a documented record of that that part of my life. And what are the key messages within it? So if people was, I mean, A, where could people go and 
buy it now, uh, as I'm sure people will off the back of this. What kind of key messages are there within the, I mean, have you discussed mental health in there or, you know, obviously the part of your journey that, that, as you say, would have been quite a dark place for you at times. That That's something that you quite keen to portray across during the, within the book. Well, I think the one thing I've learned sort of over my journey through its ups and downs was as soon as you accept um, your situation, your vulnerability, and you come to terms with it, you can deal with it and you can work with it. I stopped getting upset at people people calling me a, a cripple or a spaz and things like all the things that happen to people with physical disabilities that are visible. You know, I've, I've, I've heard it all. But once I started to accept who I was, mm. that sort of stuff is just water off a duck's back now. And I, I entitled the book, um, for, well, firstly, I called it you can't, you can't Play Cricket in a Wheelchair, right. which is what my dad said to me. When I told him I was going to play disability cricket and I was going to use a wheelchair to do it, he said, well, that's ridiculous. People in wheelchairs can't play cricket. I'm like, all right, thanks, Dad. And <laughs> then he followed that up. He followed that up with, what do you mean you're going to use a wheelchair? People are going to think you're disabled. And I'm like, well, Dad, I can't run. Yeah. I, can't, I can't walk any sort of distance. How would you explain it? What would you say I was? Yeah. He said, well, you're not disabled. I thought, oh, my God. And <laughs> at that point, you start trying to understand different generations' beliefs around disability, starting to understand the stigma that disabled people face in society. And I was getting it from my own parents. And it was like, God, this is it's just bizarre. So in terms of messages throughout the book, it, there's a lot of that sort of stuff. There's a lot of stuff where I'm coming to terms with stuff that I can't do anymore. Like I can't remember the last time I visited one of my mate's houses because I can't get in anymore. There's either yeah. steps up the front door or they're not accessible via my wheelchair or anything like that. So hopefully it's making people think of the side of disability that they don't always see. Yeah. There's also the impact that it has on parents, siblings, sons, daughters, wives, there's what I hope are what I hope come across as funny bits where I've been really compromised by the disability. I remember going to Neville Road once for in Bristol for meetings, and I stayed in the, the Holiday Inn in Bristol, and I had a bath one evening, and then couldn't get out of the bath. It was it was just horrific. I'm on my own in a hotel room, completely unable to get out of the bath. And look, there's any number of those sorts of stories yeah. in there from any number of hotels in different places across the world where I've been, yeah, in, in nightmare situations. But I end up lying on the floor looking up at ceilings, just sort of laughing because you, you, you couldn't make some of this stuff up. You know, hopefully th- th- there's a good story in there about when I was mistaken for Peter Kay. You, you know, did you watch Phoenix Nights? Yes. Yeah, oh, okay. Ryan so, Potter. Ryan Potter. Um, I won't go into the story now, but it, it, honestly, it's hilarious. Or it turns out to be hilarious. It, was, it started off as an absolute nightmare, which had me, you know, on the point of tears in Delhi Airport at one point. But yeah, it ended up with a really funny ending where I was portrayed on the front page of the Asian news newspaper with a, I don't know how many, a circulation of I don't know how many million. Yeah. As as Brian Potter, Ian Martin, head of disability cricket at the ECV. Amazing. Oh, God. Cricket yeah. aficionado violated at Delhi Airport. Oh, crikey. Right. Brilliant. Yeah. So, well, I look forward to actually that. Quite a funny story. But I, look, coming back to the question, in terms of messages in the book, I hope it will show the disabilities can be overcome uh i hope it shows that regardless of whatever baggage you carry in life as long as you own it and accept it you can go on and achieve anything that you want to really and 
without sounding too hyperbole about it, my dream as a kid was to go and represent England at cricket. Mm. Now, I've ended up doing that, but in a very, very different way to how I imagined. Yeah. And the journey between that point as a kid and where I am now has had all sorts of ups and downs in it. But on the whole, you know, I think it's a really positive, positive story, really. 100%. There's, you know, there's been, there's been some ups and downs. You know, I had a, a bit of a breakdown a few years ago, and I've, t- I've talked about that in the book. Yeah. And that was all because I hadn't dealt with the emotion and the anger of being kicked out of the Navy and the diagnosis with the disability. Yeah. So that came back and, and bit me on the backside, really, almost 20 years after it had happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I go into detail about that and how it happened and, and how I was treated for it afterwards and how I come through the other side. Lots of stuff about parents and relationships with parents, which, you know, in, in many cases in life don't always go as smoothly as you like. And mm. that was the, certainly the case with me. And also talking about my experiences as a as a bloke, as a husband, as a father, and relationships with my son and and daughter, and and, and how much they've taught me as I'm getting older. So yeah, look, hopefully there's a there's a bit in there for everybody by the sound of things. When you when you talk about uh, kind of changing of opinions, so I mean, you know, I I, I don't want to cast light on your your mum and dad at all. I obviously never met them, but. You know, is it that changing of opinions and awareness throughout your lifetime and the different generations of people that you've come across throughout your life? Would you say that your mum and dad were quite old school in their kind of values and, yeah. and probably very unaware? How much is the awareness now shifted to, you know, the point we're at today, you know, about to go into 2024? You know, you still say, you know, it sounded from what you said earlier on about perhaps you still receive some pretty vile comments from certain people when you're maybe out and about. It, it, so we know it still happens. We'd be we'd be deaf to suggest that you know these things aren't said to to people in different situations. And um, but how much better is it, and has it gotten over time? I think I think the underlying stigma and elements of discrimination are still there mm. because I I don't think people's biases prejudices change that quickly i think that changes over a generation mm. as opposed to you know having been on an uh, learning, excuse me having been on an inclusion course if you've got such deep-rooted mis miscomprehension and prejudice if you like that is, i don't think it changes overnight i think what has changed in my experience and i'm just you know obviously one of 14 million disabled people in the country I think it's, I found it less obvious. I think the subconscious bias is, is all still there. I, think, I still think there's people who think, oh, well, they're disabled, they can't do that. Mm. Um, I think this, it, it, it's still out there, but it, it, it is getting better. I think the, the actual verbal abuse and over-verbal abuse as... I hope deteriorated. Do you think that's societal? Do you think that's societal pressure, though? Do you think it is now? It would now be seen as such a negative by other people who yeah. may be within earshot of it that people, you know, it's almost that fear factor of saying something that's so out of turn that you, you know, but that that could only be a good thing, right? That, that there is that societal pressure that that is now not acceptable in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we we, we hear a lot of kind of derogatory comments about wokeism and mm. the, the wokerati and, and all that sort of stuff. From my perspective as a disabled person, almost benefiting, if you like, from that kind mm. of culture, it's not all bad. And, you know, I, I, I would like to think that there's a lot less disability discrimination about now than what there was um, a decade or two ago. But, you know, we can't we can't rest on our laurels and just think that it's all disappearing mm. because there are still some people out there experiencing some horrendous things. 
Um, well, look, it's never, it's never going to be a perfect world, is it? Unfortunately, no, 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 as no, much no. as, you know, there's many of us that wish it was. Uh, and so let's just hope that it can continue to in, in its decline. So, you know, let's hope that one day, long after we're both gone, I'm sure, but, uh, that it is completely eradicated. I want to I want to go on now a little bit. Well, dive into your to your role as head of disability cricket at the ECB. So, what are your main responsibilities in, in and goals for like development of the sport? We talked off air earlier. I mean, the, the, there are plans to have see our first centrally contracted disability cricketer by. I mean, it's a pretty bold bold number you've put on it, but by twenty thirty is your aim, isn't it? Well, I'd, I'd I'd love to see that, and I think if we don't have an aspirational target for that to be achieved by, then it, it just remains an aspiration. You know, let's let's look, see if we can achieve it. There's a, you know, I think there's a long way to go before that actually presents itself, but there's absolutely no reason at all why we can't start working towards it. We, we, we've started to, well, we, we certainly make sure our England players now are not out of pocket for representing England. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that their contractual situation will only increase and change for the better, I think, as, as years go forward. If we can get to a point, and it'll probably, it'll probably be the DPL, the Disability Premier League, yeah. that is the vehicle to make that happen. If we can get to a point through the DPL where, where players can be, can be paid and contracted centrally, then you know that has to be a good thing because what we're looking to continually do is drive the standards of disability cricket upwards. And until we can get to a point where players can concentrate full time on being the best that they can be, mm. you know, we're going to struggle to to maximise the potential of the playing group that we've got. So yeah, look, that's that's definitely a work in progress and a, an aspirational aim for us. I mean, the, dis the Disability Premier League, I think, in its second year in 2023, uh, has been fantastic, hasn't it? I mean, I, I, I know quite a lot of disability cricketers through, obviously, Woodstock and, you know, the, the, the way I sat with Alfie Pyle at the Cricket Writers Club lunch a couple of weeks back, uh, who received his first England cap on the tour that we'll talk about shortly. But that that has given these guys a whole new lease of life. The draft system, you know, the fact that they get, I think it's it's live streamed, isn't it? So it, it's fantastic and it's it's wonderful to see the uh, the progression of the game. In terms of, yeah, well, well, let's talk about that South African tour now. And and I mean, firstly, you must be so proud of this L, the England LD setup. Do you want to just tell everybody for those who aren't aware of? you know, their progress and, and their phenomenal achievements? I'd probably give, give, him, uh, give him my age away now, but I was, I was involved in the, the setting up of the Learning Disability Tri-Series um, way back in 2005. So I was the, wow. the team manager for the first ever um, tournament, and that was held out in Cape Town, November 2005. And we, we had no idea what we were going into. So the players that we chose for that tour had only ever played cricket with, a, with an incredible, with the, the soft rubber incredible. Yeah. We ended up getting to South Africa and the Australian team had all been taken from mainstream club cricket and indoor cricket. So they'd all played with the hard ball. Yeah. And the South Africans similarly they'd all come out of a special needs schools network who, again, had only ever played with the hard ball. So we came, we came third out of three in that tournament okay. without winning a game, without touching a, laying a glove on Australia or South Africa. Second series was 2007 in England. And again, we didn't, we didn't come close to beating either Australia or South Africa. Third series was 2009 in Melbourne, and yep. we won our first game against Australia at St Kilda, Junction Oval. And then the next tournament, 2011, in Kimberley, South Africa, we went unbeaten, won the tournament, and we've not lost a series since. Amazing. So it took us, it took us six years to find our feet, and progress to a point where you know we could challenge and yeah we've 
we've just been amazing ever since. You know, I, I, I can't speak for the development in South Africa and Australia because I'm, I'm not in charge of that. While I'm in charge of what goes on over here. Mm. And our boys have been magnificent. The coaching teams that have worked with them have been brilliant. And yeah, just really couldn't be prouder of the mm. journey that they've been on and how they keep performing tournament after tournament. In terms of the other boards in Cricket South Africa and Cricket Australia, how do you, do you guys, is there any kind of collaboration or how, you know, do you work with other organizations to, to grow global disability cricket? Because, you know, as you rightly say, from a, from an LD perspective, it's only the three sides that play the game globally at the moment. I know in, in PD or physical disability and, and the, the, the deaths, the, the, the deaf sides, it's, it's a little bit bigger than that. Um, what what does the what does the scope for scaling um, stuff at LD specifically globally look well, it, like? It's a bit mad, really, because globally, in terms of numbers, the LD community is is the biggest community mm. of all the four impairment groups across the world. But I think it probably tells you a lot culturally in some of these places how people with learning disabilities are viewed. Yeah. And the level of misunderstanding in the mainstream community about what these guys can achieve. So, yeah, it, it, it's massively disappointing, really, that a lot of the other countries aren't anywhere near learning disability. Yeah. Um, because what, what we've seen and what we can evidence is that if you give these guys, and it doesn't matter whether it's in cricket, sport, or broader society, if you give these guys the support that they need, they're capable of exceptional results. And mm. we're seeing that on the cricket field. So I haven't seen anything that says to me that that can't be true in other areas of life. Give them, give them the support that's needed and they'll, they'll achieve their potential the same as anybody else will. I mean, obviously inclusivity is a key aspect and, it, and I guess that's what we're, we're talking about. And it, it's proven by obviously we're both very proud Lords Taverners, as are Simon and Eugene. But programs such as Super Ones, etc., uh, are, are massive in in terms of uh, inclusivity. I know obviously with wickets and table cricket as well. How can we can we do more as a sport to to make it accessible to individuals with different disabilities, or are we are we kind of doing? Do you think we're doing everything we can at the moment? No, I think we can we we can always do more. But that's no different in women's cricket, uh, South Asian cricket, state school cricket. There's always more that we can do. But what I would say is that I'm I'm really proud of what we do do at the moment because year on year we're seeing a a difference in the distance that a disabled individual has to travel in order to access our sport. I know when I started back in, in 2007, some people having to travel hours to to get a game with other disabled people. And slowly but surely, and a lot of credit goes to the Lord's Taverners for this, through the Super Ones programme, those distances are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah. It's more, the sport is more accessible in more communities than it ever has been. You know, on, on top of the Super Ones programmes, you've also got the Disability Champions Club program that my colleague ECB Edgar Heridge runs where we've got I think around 140 disability champions clubs across the country now which are mainstream cricket clubs that have been supported and trained to become more welcoming and accessible for people with disabilities in their communities and more and more clubs are looking to come on board with that year on year. You know, you, you, you'll be aware how well Super Ones has gone and how we've now got coverage in every county yeah. across the country. So things are improving all the time. And it, it's that that's the real success of disability cricket mm-hmm. or as cricket as a sport for people with disabilities. The, the England stuff is like the shop window. Yeah. That's important because disabled kids need role models and they need to see what can be achieved. But if they can't access the game at the grassroots level, it's going to be difficult to get on the ladder of the pathway. 
So what are those key challenges that you're facing in, in terms of growing disability cricket and, and what are we trying to do to address them from an ECB perspective? It's, it's, it's about creating more opportunities in more localities, giving more people the opportunity to access the sport in their, uh, in their local community. It's about overcoming any misapprehension around what working with disabled kids is about. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we have to get rid of the myth that you can't work with disabled people unless you've done a course. Absolute rubbish. Okay, or, or if, 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 you're a, if you're a decent cricket coach, um, your key traits are communication, adaptability, and adapt- flexing your session to the audience yeah. that you've got. So if you, if you put it in a mainstream context, you can have two kids that live next door to each other, both of the same age. One's father or mother played a lot of cricket, and the other one's father or mother didn't play any cricket at all. So they both turn up for a coaching session at the local club on a Friday night. One knows how to hold a cricket bat or hold a cricket ball. And the other one doesn't know from Adam, you know, what, which way to hold the bat or how to stand. So the coach has to adapt his style to each of those kids. And that's the same skill as you need to work with kids with disabilities. Of course it it's is, just, yeah. It's about adapting your session to the audience. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And like you say, I think communication is, you know, if you're talking to, to kids who are aspergic or, have, uh, you know, or the, uh, there's so many different, you know, I, I, and I don't want to talk out of turn because my, my knowledge of, of disability cricket is more mostly from the outside of my work with the Lord's Terminus, but you, you are dealing with so many different types of personalities. And within, you know, two people, you may have, I don't know, five or kids defined as autistic within one session but those five kids could have vastly different personalities and all have different individual needs don't they so it's so i think it is vitally important that i think communication must be a huge part of the the coach's roles well it is and, and also prep before the session if you know let, let, try and establish if there's kids with disabilities going to come to the session work out what their needs are before they turn up just to take pressure off yourself. Yeah. Because it, it might be that if you've got 10 kids, one of them might have a disability and it might be that that individual might need some individual support. But you, if you're the only coach looking after 10 kids, you can't spend all your time working with the, the lad with additional needs. So, you know, let's make sure you've got adequate staffing to, to be able to, to help um, and also be, be realistic about what success looks like. Mm. If you've got somebody with quite a high level of, of disability, maybe limited trunk movement or limited arm movement, they may, they may well never have caught a ball in their life. Mm. So to expect them to catch a hard cricket ball on their first session, probably unrealistic. Yeah. Start start with a size three football or a sponge ball. Okay. Yeah. The the feeling of elation that child will get from having caught a ball for the first time will be the equivalent of one of your more able, talented youngsters getting a fifty in his first knock or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Success is relative. One of the other things I just wanted to ask you about, Ian, is success stories within disability cricket. So are there any particular highlights or achievements that you've seen whilst within the game that you, you can put your finger on as being particularly proud of? Look, there's a couple of really recent ones that you're, you're, you're probably aware of through your Lord's Tavernous connections. We've had two guys that have just been out on the learning disability tri-series visit to South Africa. Two young lads, Alfie Pyle and Ben Mason, 
who got their, their first introductions to cricket through the Lord's Tavern and Super Ones program. And wow. they've now come from that entry-level program right the way up the pathway and made their debuts out in, out in South Africa last month. So that's the first time that we've seen players come in from introductory level disability opportunities right up the pathway and then go on to represent England. So the very, you know, the very fact that that is now happening and it's happened to two people this year, you know, we, we don't know how many more there's going to be in the future, but the fact that it's happened now suggests that the future is bright and, you know, hopefully there'll be a, a few more of, uh, a few more stories like that coming through. I mean, Alfie and Ben, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like literally a month ago, they, they'd not made their England debuts. And then a little over two weeks ago, I watched them playing at the Wanderers in the, in the final against Australia. Amazing. So, you know, what a journey. I think, look, as soon as one person does something, it proves it's possible, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, you know, that, that, any, any kid either currently within a Super Ones programme or thinking about going to join a Super Ones programme, you the sky is the limit. Yeah. You really don't know. So, yeah, certainly get yourselves down to one of them. Contact your, your, lo- your Lord's Taverners or find out where your local Super Ones programme is and absolutely get involved. And, and also to people in the in the mainstream cricket community, you, you if you can give an opportunity to some youngsters with disabilities to come and be part of your club and part of your cricket community, you don't know what pathway you're setting them off on. Uh, because the, you know, the talented ones do have the opportunity to go on and, uh, and play for England. Brilliant. Couldn't agree more. So in terms of, you know, as you just referenced, like, you know, us as a podcast and me as an individual through Woodstock, you're always trying to help the, the tabs and, promote disability cricket and what we can do what can you know those people the hundreds of thousands of people that are no doubt listening to this um what can they do as individuals and organizations to to really help what you you know your aims are as ecb head of disability cricket i think first and foremost see, see the person and not the disability see the potential and not the limitations um, and I, I, you know, I would say that about anybody looking at anybody with a disability in any walk of life. Um, but obviously, cricket's our passion and what's important to us. I think give provide the opportunity and 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 work work with the person with the disability to understand what. Adaptations or needs that they've got, and just work together to to bridge any gaps that that are there. Is there any commercial organisations listening to this who wanted to perhaps you know like the Barclay Foundation support the Super Ones program, for example? You know, and there, there are other fantastic partners out there with the Lord's Taverners. What what could a commercial organise if if a, if an MD of a, a big business wanted to? approach someone and say, right, okay, I really want to get behind disability cricket because I really believe in what Ian and the team are doing and, and what the guys are achieving. What advice would you give to them in terms of how to go about that? I, th- I think the, f- the, f- the first thing that we'd, we'd need to agree on and, and have in common is an agreed set of values between the commercial organisation yeah. and ourselves and where, where we want to go. And this is about creating opportunities for those that hitherto have had limited opportunity, yeah, but also to to celebrate success, to celebrate inclusion in in sport, and to show the excellence of and the level of performance that these guys can aspire to and get to. You know, it, it's I think the program that we have is all encompassing. At the bottom end of the pathway at introductory level, it's about giving as many disabled youngsters as possible. My, my main aim being in the role is to make sure that any disabled youngster in the country has got the opportunity to play cricket at, at a level that's appropriate for them. Yeah. Then they can choose whether they like it or not. And if they don't like it, got no issue with that at all but at least they've had the opportunity to try it and decide they don't like it my guess would be 
that if they do try it, there's more of them going to like it than dislike it because, firstly, it's a great game. Secondly, it can be adapted to their needs. Thirdly, there's a pathway for the talented guys to go on and progress if that's what they wish. But also, they can actually enjoy not being very good at it because there's club cricketers out there every weekend not very good at cricket, but yeah. enjoying playing. And that's what it's all about. It's about giving people enjoyment of the game. And that goes right the way to the top level. And the top level isn't always appropriate for a lot of players because it takes a hell of a lot of commitment, a hell of a lot of hard yeah. work, a lot of discipline. And international cricket at whatever level is hard. So... You've got to be the the talent will get you the opportunity, but not everybody's got the right mindset or attitude to succeed at the top end. Yeah. So there there is definitely a a mental challenge as well within that, and and the discipline that goes with being a high level sports person. So if 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 we're looking at relationships between commercial businesses and performance level sport, then. You know, we we'd be looking to partner up with somebody that's got the same beliefs and values that we have, and yeah. it, it's not necessarily all about cash. What what we need is a is a higher platform to celebrate the talent and the success that our top level players have got, at, whilst also recognising the success of the program at the introductory level as well. Yeah, I know that. Uh, so from a from a taverner's perspective. You know, they they want to talk to commercial organisations about, you know, people gifting time to come and, and be a part of these coaching sessions and what have you. Yeah. You know, come and learn. You know, it's, it's a real opportunity to engage your staff with something that will do them a lot of good as well as helping, you know, put the put these sessions on. So the, there are a huge amount of opportunities out there. Of course, people can get in touch with us at info at sogginit.co.uk uh, to find out more about that. And we can direct you to the right people if that's of interest. Uh, only a couple more questions for you now, Ian. I'm sure you'll be glad to know because that bottle of red wine seems to be nearing the bottom. Uh, as, the landscape of, <laughs> as the landscape of cricket continues to evolve, it, and it seems like there's a new, new fathomed cricket tournament kind of every five minutes these days, what innovations or changes do you expect to see for disability cricket as we move forward? I think I think the domestic structure um, in the UK will stay relatively the same in terms of its structure. So we've got Super Ones, County Championship at four different levels, DPL, and then we've got the international stuff. Internationally, I can see... 2020 being the preferred format yeah. at the moment. DPL, I think, has got the scope and the opportunity to, to flex a little bit. I can see overseas players coming into that. Wow, into amazing. DPL. Okay. I could see closer alignment to the 100. You know, okay. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily see it in the next 12 months, but certainly over the over the coming years, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way it, it kind of drifted. Hopefully we'll see a bit more broadcast of, of DPL. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I think one of the things I say to, to my team quite often is if you look at the game itself, right, what is it, 300 years old, 350 years old? Yeah, yeah. LBW came in less than 100 years ago. Women's cricket kicked off properly, what, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And disability cricket has been being played in one form or another probably 30 or 40 years, but certainly not at the level that it is at the moment. Yeah. So in the context of the game being 350 years old, we've moved a hell of a long way in a in very, a very, very short period of yeah. time. Yeah. So, you know, I, th I think sometimes we we can get a bit of criticism in some quarters for how often different things are changed within the game. But 
I kind of make no apologies for that because we're learning year on year. And it, I think it would be more of a crime if the game stayed still, given 100%. how young we are in terms of its development. We're learning all the time and we will make changes to make things better. So like in 2024, for example, I think we've got 63 different county teams wow. at one level or another. When I started, we had, I think it was 10. Amazing. So, you know, it, it, it's come on really quickly in very few years. So changes will keep happening as we seek to perfect and improve, you know, what it is that we're offering to people. Amazing. Well, look, you're, you're obviously doing a, a phenomenal job. You are not I'm obviously singling you out, but obviously the team with which you work on a, on a daily basis as well. Finally, what advice for, you know, if there are youngsters living with disability who are listening to this, what, and they've got ideals or dreams of a career in sport or are looking to get into the game, what is the, the, the best route in for, for those guys? So youngsters with a disability that want to access cricket, First call of call is your lo local county cricket board. Okay. okay. And details of how to contact them will be on the, the ECB website. I think my sort of ambition for disability cricket is that we, we currently lose talented disabled people at the age of 13, 14 to the Paralympic sports. Okay. Because... Every four years, you have this massive Paralympic jamboree. It gets lots of publicity, lots of promotion, lots of airtime. And people are, are, are given the dream and they are inspired to go on to be a gold medalist and stand on a podium in a fantastic stadium receiving a gold medal. And, you know, what a dream. What, what, what a goal to have. My wish is that we don't lose people who are cricketers or who want to be cricket cricket players to Paralympic sport. Mm. What I would like to see them do, or I would like to see our, our sport be able to offer them the opportunity to come up the pathway and for the really talented ones to go on and play for England in whatever impairments group that they're in. Mm. whilst also carrying on with their professional career as well. So we're not, we're not a Paralympic sport at the moment. We don't get UK sport funding. But what we can do is offer those individuals the opportunity to get to the top of the game, to play for England, to play in Ashes Series and World Cups, places like South Africa, the Caribbean, like you know every, any, any other England player does, yeah. whilst also pursuing a professional career. So if you, if you want to go on to be a lawyer or a, an accountant or a sport development professional, you can still access your university and still do your professional courses whilst also accessing our sport, top-level coaches in high-quality facilities. So there's, hopefully there's going to be a new facility coming up in, in Worcester over the next couple of years aligned to the university there, where I hope very much that England Disability Cricket will be based at the new centre, a world-class well, world facility, state-of-the-art facility, um, a university that is driven by equality and inclusion and is a, a world leader in disability coaching and the academic side of disability sport. So if you've got that as a a leading academic institution and a world-class facility on their doorstep and access to all our coaches and sports science professionals, we can offer a pretty good programme for talented disabled cricketers going forward and the opportunity for them to maintain their, their, their studies and pursue a professional career. And I think that will be an offer that, that should be able to rival the Paralympic offer mm. for those that want to be cricketers. Fantastic. Well, look, Ian, you're an inspiration. You're a great friend. I very much look forward to seeing you on Wednesday where we can have a glass of red wine together rather than a glass of red wine at one end and a glass of orange squash at the other from 250 miles apart. 
<laughs> thank you so much for coming on. No worries. Just remind people, how cricket saved my life. Where where is that available? Amazon. Uh, it's on. It's still available on Amazon, I believe. Okay, fantastic. So right, please do in, search uh, that. And also, you can follow Ian. His uh, Instagram tag is at Cricket on Wheels, and that'll give you a bit of an idea into his personality as well. He's got, calls himself that. Ian, thank you so much, mate. It's been a joy to spend this much time talking to you and uh, for your dreams of disability cricket. And as I say, look forward to a glass of wine with you on Wednesday, my friend. Nice one. Cheers, John. It's been good to talk, mate. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.